We've still got a few weeks to go in the Sermon on the Mount, so we're, uh, we're not finishing up with the end of term. We're going to continue on after Easter in the Sermon on the Mount. So I hope you've been finding it helpful. Uh, I asked this, one of the congregations this morning, have they enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount? And people didn't quite know how to answer that because it's so challenging at points that I don't know that enjoyed is the right word. But I always know people are getting into things when they're asking good questions on the feedback slips and we're getting lots of good questions I try to reply to those on the Monday or Tuesday after the sermon Uh, I had a great one a couple of weeks ago uh, when I preached on um, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing and we talked about putting plaques on walls and all that sort of stuff and someone sent me a question I replied to it via email and I got a letter wrong in the email address and I got this email back from a lovely man in Kansas City in America Uh, who assured me that when he gave to the church building fund last year he did not let them know that it was him and he didn't get a (laughs) plaque put on the wall and uh, he thanked me for my my thoughts so there you go our our sermons are reaching Kansas City of all places so uh, anyway I'm going to pray for us now and we'll uh, look at this part of God's word so let's pray our heavenly father uh, we give you thanks for the sermon on the mount and we thank you for the way it challenges us and really forces us to think about ourselves and our own lives and how we respond to the grace we have received in Jesus. We thank you also for the way it encourages us and in particular reminds us of the fact that despite we, the way we fall short of your standards, you forgive us through Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that it will do that again tonight, that it will really push us and challenge us where we need to be pushed and challenged, but it will also encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start tonight by uh, asking you a question. Uh, There's two types of people in the world, I think, and I want to ask you which one you are. Are you the type of person who, when you get your dinner plate and the food on it, who keeps the good stuff till the end? Or are you the type of person who eats the good stuff straight away? And when I say good stuff, I'm particularly meaning hot chips. That's what I'm talking about. So when you get your meal and there's broccoli and whatever else and hot chips, do you eat the hot chips straight away or do you keep them to last to eat them at the end? So I'll just get a show of hands. Who's an eat them straight away type person? I am, so join me, brothers and sisters. There you go. Yeah. Who's a save it till the end type? There's more. More savers till the ends. Well, there you go. Oh, that's interesting. I eat them first, uh, I think, because of the family I grew up in. Uh, so in my family, I quickly worked out my brother was a keep them till the end person. And I worked out if I eat mine, I'm a good chance of stealing half of his by the time we get to the end. And if we stand next to each other now, you'll be able to tell the difference because of <laughs> that philosophy in life. But uh, anyway, that, that was my thing. Now, you might just think I'm a horrible brother, you know, and you're never going to listen to my sermons ever again, uh, though I've found forgiveness now. But uh, actually, I've worked out that unconsciously, even at that age, I was a Bible teacher and I was teaching my brother the scriptures because he needed to learn Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Look at it with me. It says, do not collect for yourselves treasures on earth. So all you hoarders, eat your hot chips straight away. Don't don't collect for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal you see my brother needed to learn if you're going to try and hoard your chips they will go my brother used to have to go and put his plate in the microwave two or three times before he'd finished his meal that's how long he hoarded them for 
But you see, this Jesus is saying here, do not hoard. But of course, Jesus is talking about much more than our dinner table, isn't he? And he was talking about the reality that everything in this world, whatever it is you think in this world is going to last, it will not last. That's the point Jesus is making. Everything in this world does not last. And they knew that much better than us in the ancient world. So for them, it was just you spend your money on that lovely piece of clothing, moths will eat holes in it. That's the reality. It will not last. And, And that extra grain you stored up because you had a good crop this season, it does not last. The rats come and eat it. It rots away. The gold you stored in your home, thieves would break in and steal it. And if you invested in your house, in the bricks and mortar of building your own home in the ancient world, well, who knows when the next invading army was going to come through, whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans who it was at the time of Jesus. You see, they understood it. They knew Everything in this world is temporary. It does not last. But we, we modern human beings, we've sort of conned ourselves into thinking that's not true for us. Or at least people in places like Sydney in Australia have conned ourselves into thinking that. Go and ask a person in Syria at the moment whether things last and see how they answer. A person in Sudan and say, see what they say. But we have locks and alarms and insurance policies and we con ourselves into thinking these things are secure. These things will last. But then the GFC comes and suddenly that person who is going to retire because they've got all this security can't retire because their shares are worth half as much as they were a week before. Or we lose our job and suddenly that mortgage we've got, we can't afford to pay it off because we don't have an income anymore. Or the housing bubble bursts and we see just how temporary the things of this world really are. But the thing is, even if they do last, we don't last. And that is the great truth of the human reality. When you die, you can't take it with you. Like Job tells us, put it up on the screen, thanks Damien. Job chapter 1, verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. That's Job's way of saying you cannot take it with you when you die. But of course, if this life is all there is, so if you're someone who does not believe there is a God, does not believe there is a heaven and a hell, if this life is all there is, then I would say to you, do your best to accumulate treasures here. That's just logical. If this life is all there is, then do your best to get as much money as you can now. In fact, I think, I actually think the person who really believes this life is all there is, doesn't try and accumulate money, they try and spend money. Isn't that true? If you really believe there is nothing beyond this life, then I think the logical person says I'm going to walk this fine line where I will earn as much money as I can and then try and spend it all so on the day I die my bank account hits zero. That's logic. If I wasn't a Christian I would be a hedonist. I'd be out there eating, drinking, travelling, doing whatever I could to get as many experiences as I could before I died. You see that is the tension of the modern world I think I think our modern world is sort of schizophrenic and you see that when you get your Saturday Sydney Morning Herald one of the two glossiest parts of the Saturday Sydney Morning Herald they are the two idols that we worship in our modern world on the one hand what's the glossiest section 
the real estate pages. They even make that a thick, glossy paper just to say, look at how good this is. Because that's what we worship. Because people say, on the one hand, I want security. I must own a house. I must own a house. I must get a good job and enough money, buy a big house, and then I must get a bigger house. That is the way our modern world thinks. That's the one side. But then we're schizophrenic because what's the next glossiest section? It's the travel section. Because, you see, we say, actually, I don't just want security, I want experiences. I want to go and swim with whale sharks off Western Australia. And I, I don't understand that because wherever there's a whale shark, there's like, anyway, there's likely to be a different sort of shark. But, uh, you know, well, you must go to Paris and you must go up the Eiffel Tower. You must go to Bali and do whatever you do in Bali. And, you know, all these sorts of things. And that is the tension of our modern world. And they are the idols of modern-day Sydney. On the one hand security houses on the other hand experiences travel or restaurants or whatever else it is and sadly those two idols seem to sit very comfortably next to Jesus on the mantelpiece of most modern Christians as well but Jesus says this life is not all there is we look forward to heaven and that must shape the way we live our life now look at verse 20 jesus said don't store up treasures on earth but then he says instead collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal just look at this screen up here i've worked very hard on my slides for this week see the screen that is eternity okay it's not really because it was eternity it would go on forever that way but just think of that as all the time that you will ever exist there is all the time the billions of years where you will exist into trinity into eternity if jesus is right see that that's eternity now do you see over here on my special slide the very small dot up there you you can't i'm tricking you there's no little dot there but but that's actually the point you see, the point is, you can't even see the little dot that is your 70 or 80 or 90 years on this earth compared to eternity. You can't even see it. That's how little this life is in the scheme of things compared to the amount of time you'll exist into all of eternity. And so Jesus' point is very, very simple. He says, why on earth... Would you focus all your time and your energies on storing up treasures in the little dot that, that you can't even see instead of focusing your time and your energies on storing up treasures that will last into eternity for the rest of your existence, for the rest of time? So how do we store up treasures in heaven? How do we do that? Well, heavenly treasure is not about deposits in a bank account. I think as you read the whole New Testament, what you see is heavenly treasure is about people. That's what heavenly treasure is about. Most fundamentally, it's the joy of seeing how your life here, for this 70 or 80 or 90 years, whatever God blesses you with, how your life here has had an impact on other people that lasts for eternity. That's how you store up heavenly treasure. So what are the things that last for eternity? It's the faith and the hope and love that grows in people. 
That's what last returning in yourself and in others. It's the good works of service of others that Jesus has prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's the grace and the love that we show another person in need that points them to the love of Jesus. See, that has an impact for eternity. And especially it is the active effort to see other people be in eternity. To see other people come to know Jesus and find the salvation we have found. It's through praying for people. It's through sharing the gospel with people. It's through supporting others to take the gospel to people. That will never disappear. That is the treasure that lasts into eternity. It's being there and standing there in heaven and saying, look at that person over there. I shared the gospel with them. Not out of pride, but out of the joy of knowing that they are now there with you in heaven. It's the joy of looking and seeing that Tanzanian person there in heaven. And you say, I never met them, but I prayed for the Turners. And I supported the Turners. And they shared the gospel with that person and they're now here in heaven. And there's that person over there who's going through a tough time. And they didn't know whether they were going to stick with their Christian faith. And I went out of my way to go and encourage them and read the scriptures with them. And now they're there. That is the treasure that lasts for eternity. That joy of knowing that my life here now has had an impact that lasts. But here, to be very frank, Jesus is especially talking about how we use our money. That's the context here. Do we hoard it all up for ourselves and our security and our experiences, or do we spend it on things that last for eternity? And Jesus says, you will reap more joy for eternity by spending your money supporting the work of the gospel than on any house renovation and on any trip to Ningaloo to swim with a whale shark. I just read about that in the travel section a couple of weeks ago, that's why I keep bringing it up. Jesus is saying, surely, surely if you believe, surely if you believe in heaven, you would rather accumulate treasure that lasts forever than treasure here that has no eternal value. Now Jesus is not saying sell everything and give it all away. He's not condemning owning a house. He's not condemning going on a holiday. He's not speaking against what the Bible would call godly prudence, saving for a rainy day so that you are not a burden on others, so you can provide for yourself and your family and be generous to others. But what he is speaking against is that constant desire for more. That constant idea that that I always need more, I need more money, I need a bigger house, I need a better holiday and whatever it is. He's speaking against that consumerism and that greed that is just normal in our modern society and sadly is increasingly normal in the church of God. He's wanting us to ask, why do I need this? He's wanting to challenge the person who just works so they can get enough money to go on the next trip. And the person who just works so they can get enough money to upgrade the car. And the person who just works to get enough money to get the bigger house. And he's wanting us to ask, why do I need this? Is this actually the best use of my life and of my resources that God has given us? And so the big point is there in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. See, if we focus, if our focus is on accumulating earthly treasure, that shows that our heart 
is firmly in this world. We actually aren't that interested in eternity. We're just interested in this 70 or 80 or 90 years. So the question is, what is it that you long for? What, what actually excites you? Is it the next experience? Is it the security of this world? Or is it set on heaven? Is that where your heart is? What drives you? And Jesus' point is what we desire, what we want to accumulate, shows us what we really believe. And I think that's the point of this funny little story. Come with me to verses 22 and 23. He sort of just suddenly starts talking about the eye being the lamp of the body and the eye letting light in and all that sort of thing. And I think he's just thinking, what, what is your eye set on? What do, you, what do you focus on? If we set our eyes on heaven, if that's what we live for, then our whole life will walk in the light. But if our eye is focused on this world... If our eyes are always caught up with what we want on the things we desire, then our whole body, our whole life will be filled with darkness. You see, that is the lie of this world. The lie of this world says, if I can just get what I'm looking at, I'll be happy. It's not actually true. The person who's always wanting more is never happy because their heart is full of darkness. But the modern Christian wants to say, or at least this modern Christian wants to say, can't I have both? Can't I love Jesus and have a go at building up some treasure here on earth? Can't I be focused on heaven but be really, really attached to things here in this life? And frankly, if you shop around, you'll find many preachers who tell you you can have both. But Jesus is not one of them. Look at what he says. He says it's an either or. Look at verse 24. He says, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. We don't understand this because, because of the wonderful work of Christians three or four hundred years ago, we don't really understand slavery. Uh, we, think of, we think, yeah, like a job and your boss, but we can have two jobs. You can work at McDonald's on Monday and Tuesday and at KFC on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. You'll stink, but you, you, you know, you can do that. And it does, they don't impinge two jobs, you just work your hours and that sort of thing. But a slave is owned by their master. And God says that's what he wants us to be. He wants us to be his loved slaves, his dearly loved slaves. God is our master. Not in the bad sense of a slave master, but the, the master who loves us and cares for us. And his point is you can't have two slaves. You can't have two people who drive you. You can't have two different people who set your direction. And that's the thing with money. When it becomes your master, there is no other master. There's no room for God anymore. You become driven by this world rather than by him. Think of your car. You know, if who's... I still remember when my father taught me to drive and I still remember him grabbing the steering wheel from the uh, not trusting me enough and so I'm there driving and he's going what's up with the car and grabs the steering wheel and his foot would do that on the floor because he's looking for the brake. Who here is currently learning to drive? You know what it's about, don't you? you know. And so, but it doesn't work, does it, when you've got two people driving the car? What has to happen? Either one of them has to get out 
or one of them has to be pushed out, like in the movies, you know, when they kick the other guy out of the car. And that's, that's what has to happen, and that is the thing. God is not willing to sit in the passenger seat while you follow the desires of this world. You cannot have two masters. You can't have both. I don't know about you, but for me at least, I think this is one of the hardest challenges of Scripture. I think more than any other part of Scripture... This drives to my heart and exposes the reality of the sin of my heart. Because the reality is, I so often try to have both masters. So often, I know God is the one who deserves all my obedience and all my love. I know that heaven will last for eternity, but gee, this world is nice. And gee, I'd just like to have a bit more of that. And so often my heart is divided. And so I need to repent. I need to repent of all too often in my heart really wanting the treasures of this world. All too often in my heart trying to have my cake and eat it too. And my response to this passage is twofold. And I hope your response is the same. Firstly, my response to this passage is to thank Jesus. That he has saved me despite my divided heart. See, my first response is to thank Jesus that I am saved by his death and resurrection, not by how much I make God the centre of my life. See, that's my first reaction, to thank Jesus for his forgiveness. But my second reaction, my second response is, now as a forgiven sinner, to pray and to ask God to help me to truly live for eternity. That should be our response to this passage. To repent of our greed. And to seek to use this life, this time, this money, everything we have for things that will matter for eternity. I think that's the right response to this passage. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But let's move on into the second half of the passage from verse 25. Come with me now. Because Jesus now moves on to another sort of related opposite issue we struggle with. Sometimes a heart focused on this world will show itself in greed. I always want more. And especially in a middle class culture like ours, where we don't know what it is to be hungry and not have a bed to sleep in and not have clothes to wear to keep us warm. But strangely, being too attached to this world can also show itself in anxiety and in worry. Because greed shows my heart is struck in this world we, we don't understand our future hope well enough. Well, anxiety about these things shows a lack of faith in God's goodness and God's ability to provide for us. So let's look at verse 25. He says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. You know, the funny thing is, when we read that, we think, don't worry about what you'll eat. We think, yeah, should I have the oysters or the steak? He's talking about, don't worry about where your next meal will come from. And we read it and don't worry about what you'll wear. We think, yeah, should I wear my jeans or my shorts? How cold is it today? They're talking about, don't worry about where your clothes are going to come from to keep you warm. Now, it's really important we think hard about this. What does he mean by don't worry? He doesn't mean don't worry to the extent that you just do nothing and wait for God to provide. that's, That's not what he's talking about. We're told elsewhere, if a person is not willing to work, then they should not eat. 
God encourages us to work hard so that we will have enough to feed ourselves and our family and look after those who are unable to work, who can't find work. And this is not speaking about worry in the sense of, uh, of worrying about doing the right thing. Jesus wants us to worry about doing the right thing. And part of godliness is actually working hard in your job and planning ahead. Just read the book of Proverbs if you want to see God's wisdom on hard work and saving and all those sorts of things. Now, the word he uses here is more about a deep anxiety and fear. And that is the worry, Jesus is saying, that is actually sinful. That deep anxiety and fear. It's the word he uses when he talks about Martha. You know the story of Mary and Martha? Remember how Jesus went there and Mary sat and listened to Jesus teach, but Martha couldn't. She was just too worried, too worried that everything would be right and that there'd be enough food and that the the house would be right. And Jesus says that worry is sinful, that anxiety. And it's the word Jesus uses in the parable of the soils, you know the parable he tells, when he talks about how the worries of this world, the anxieties of this world can strangle a person's faith and stop them trusting in Jesus. See, it's that anxiety that shows that we don't actually trust in God to provide. The great Christian writer, our next slide, thanks Damien, J.C. Ryle said this about it. He said, prudent provision for the future is right. So, you know, setting aside money for a rainy day is right. But wearing, corroding, self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. Now, I should make a slight caveat at this point there are some people who have a medical condition of anxiety and so forth and you that that sort of person needs to get help for that and that's a medical condition but this is talking about all things being equal just worrying and worrying and worrying about things where God can provide for us and so Jesus gives us these wonderful examples and sort of rhetorical questions scan down the verses with me Uh, he says look at the birds of the air look at the flowers of the field Do they worry about it? God looks after them. And aren't you more important to God than they are? It's a simple point. And he says, what does worrying achieve anyway? Can you add a year to your life by worrying? You'll probably take five off. If you're a worrier, you'll end up with a heart condition. You you know, he says, can you add an inch to your height? You'll probably actually be five inches shorter because you'll be stooped over with the worries of this world. And anyway, at the end there, he says, what good does worrying about tomorrow do? Just deal with today first. You know, why worry is his point. But in the end, his point is actually about faith. Why worry when you can trust in the God who loves you? That's his point. And so the big point is there from verse 31. Look with me. He says, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. All through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus wants us to be different to other people. Different to people who don't know Jesus. And this is an area where we need to be different to other people. Other people have to worry because they do not know the God of the universe. We know and trust in the God who knows what we need. When Jesus says the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, he's talking about any person who does not know Jesus. Any person who does not know Jesus is an idolater. They either worship themselves or a little stone idol or a house or anything else that we worship in our world. And people who don't know Jesus need to worry. 
because they don't know the God who provides. But if we worry about things like other people do, then that suggests we care about things in exactly the same way they do. And we care about this world just like they do, when we don't. And more than that, when we worry about the same things other people do, that suggests we don't really trust God and his goodness and his love for us. So the question Jesus is asking here is, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God has your best interests at heart? Well, then if I do, why would I worry? Why would I worry? Because when I'm saying, when I worry, I'm saying, I don't believe that. And the thing is, even if God chooses not to provide what I think I need, I have the wonderful promise of Scripture that He is always in control and He is always working for my good. God is always working for the eternal good of those who love Him. See, our worries should not sound like the worries of the people of our world. When you're outside your exam at school or uni, are you just like other people? Are you worried about it? Or are you someone who says, do you know what, in the end it doesn't matter. In the end, eternally, it's not that important. I don't need to worry like other people. When you face stress and uncertainty, the way we act should be different to the way other people do. For them, it's all they have. For us, it's really not that important. When you're short of money, even for the essentials, when you're out of work, when you're put in a difficult position, do you complain and worry and stress in exactly the same way as other people do? Or are you different because you know the God who provides? Jesus said before, back at verse 21, go back there. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, now he makes a similar point, his final point. And that is what you seek after, what fixates you, what you worry about, that shows what you really believe. And so what do we worry about? What do we seek after? Well, look at what he says in verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Jesus came to bring in the kingdom of God. He came and died on the cross so that we would be declared righteous, right with God through faith in him. And now he works in us by his spirit to help us put off sin and put on righteousness. So the person who seeks first the kingdom of God, what do they do? First of all, they trust in Jesus. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. We trust in Jesus. And then we seek to make him the king in every area of our life. So in every area of our life, we seek to put off sin and live righteously. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But then more than that, how does the kingdom of God grow? It grows as people come and join us in trusting in Jesus. So to seek first the kingdom of God means to live for the kingdom, like we sang about before. It means to live with a desire to see other people come to know Jesus and to see our own lives brought under his control. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if you seek first the kingdom of God, God will look after the other stuff. Now we need to notice some things here. Look at that promise there where he says, and all these things will be provided for you. Firstly, notice that God's promise is about needs, not wants. It's about having enough food to live, 
clothes to keep you warm and a bed to sleep in at night. It's not promising truffle-infused pasta from Jamie Oliver or (laughs) Nike shoes or a holiday each year to Europe. Also, this is about a general principle. And frankly, my experience bears out this general principle. In my experience, people who seek first the kingdom of God, even when they are in need, their needs are met through the people of God, through the church that they are a part of. But it is a general principle. Sometimes, elsewhere in scripture we're told, some Christians will suffer for the gospel and go hungry. Paul went hungry as he was suffering for the gospel. But even there we can trust that God is in control and working for the good of his children. I just say that because people can get distracted by these things. I've been in so many Bible studies over the year and they go, but what about this friend of mine who saw first the kingdom and went hungry that night? Well, they didn't starve. And what is that main point? What is Jesus' challenge to us here? Jesus is saying, what is your ambition in life? That's what he's asking you. What drives you? What do you care about more than anything else? Everyone has ambitions. Some are very modest. I just want a couch to sit on and a TV to watch. Sadly, many males have that ambition in life. That is their ambition, in my experience. Others have incredible ambitions. You know, to be the President of the United States. And hey, if Donald can do it, we can get there. But what what is your driving ambition? Everyone has a driving ambition. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that excites you? Is it for your comfort? Is it for your needs? Is it for your wealth, for your power, for your happiness? Those are the things people of this world are ambitious for. Or are we ambitious for the kingdom of God? Are we ambitious for God's glory? Where is our heart? Where are we storing up our treasure? What is the focus of our time and our efforts and our energies and our money? See, I pray that you are the type of person who says, there are things I enjoy. I enjoy football. I work in my profession and I work hard. I enjoy spending time with friends and family. But my greatest ambition is to live to honour Jesus. And then you say, it's nice that I got that promotion at work, you know, and that I'm paid a bit more. But that's not what drives me. And if I didn't get it, I wouldn't worry. Because what drives me is seeing other people come to know my Saviour. That's my ambition. And do you know the wonderful thing? When you get your primary ambition right, when you seek first the kingdom of God, it actually liberates us to get the other things right. You see, our work is no longer a cause for anxiety. It's no longer, it doesn't, doesn't worry me anymore because that's not how I define myself. It's not how I work out how precious I am. You see, it puts it in its right place. We can treat our work as it's meant to be treated. I hope I do get that promotion and, and that will enable me to be more generous. But, but if I don't, that's okay because what matters more is the kingdom of God. You know, I think we do need to extend the house to, to enable us to be more hospitable, but we don't need as big a house as the Joneses and we certainly don't need a toilet for every bedroom. Because in the end, this is just a house. And when Jesus returns, it'll be gone. And our bank account ceases to be a source of worry. We don't check it on the internet every day. It just becomes a means to an end. It's good that I have enough money to be able to look after myself and care for others and do good things. 
Do you see how wonderful it is, how liberating it is? When we seek first the kingdom of God, it liberates us to do the other things properly rather than worry about them and be fixated on them. And that's Jesus' point. Seek first the kingdom and trust God to look after the rest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are conscious of our need to repent in this area. All too often our eyes are fixed firmly on the things of this world. All too often we are distracted and focus on building treasures and experiences up here in this world. Help us, Father, to truly believe our future hope. To truly believe that we live for heaven. That Jesus has won us a place there and that is what we look forward to. And so we pray that we would use this life you have given us now to build up treasure there. And so, Father, especially we pray that we would be people who seek first your kingdom and trust in you to provide everything else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.